You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Peace and blessings to all our listeners. Welcome to the Voice of Islam. It's Sunday, the 10th of September. The time now is 10.08. This is the Weekend World Show with Asad Ahmadi. Listen to Voice of Islam on DAB radio, mobile and online 24 hours a day, broadcasting live from the Bethel Fathu Mosque in London. The Weekend World Show is a current affairs show with the week's news, views and reviews from a faith and non-faith perspective. Promoting the message of peace and unity, discussing religion, politics, sports and topics of faith and spirituality. A message of Islam for the West. Join us and share us with your views or stories by phoning on 0208 687 7878 or you can tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. The views on the Weekend World Show are those of the individuals and guests and not necessarily of the Muslim community. My co-host, is always, as always, is Willie Ahmed, the Chief Librarian at the Battle for Thumos, Kerry Morden, and the editor of the Ahmadiyya Muslim Bulletin, a monthly magazine of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Assalamu alaikum, Walid. Oh, wa alaikum Beautiful day outside. Mm-hmm. I was there walking into the, into the lovely heat. Mm. I started reminiscing of my early days in Kenya. Oh, Marie, you remember yeah. that far back? Oh, absolutely. I remember <laughs> all of that. <laughs> okay. I think I've got a very vivid memory of Kenya. Yes, better yes. than I have. Oh, yes. really? Um, yeah. yeah. Okay. The heat of the stones and you know uh-huh. the pavement coming off. Mm. Uh, absolutely beautiful. I know. It's, it's very strange experiencing this weather in, uh, in, in September. September. Yeah. <laughs> but, but <isn't laughs> you expect like, rain, don't you? Yeah, they call it the, the Indian summer, isn't it? Oh. It's nothing to do with India, apparently. Okay. No, it's to do with something to do with... Uh, the Indians in in America, I think. Oh, I could be wrong, but it's, okay. but I know it's not nothing to do with India, of, or or it might be known as Bharat now. Oh, <laughs> Bharat, yes, Bharat, yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> is the Rand Indian summer strictly speaking? Is it when uh, we talk about Indian summer? Yeah, that's right. Okay. Yeah, the, the, the fiery Indians of, mm-hmm. of America rather than of the Britain. Anyway. Oh, that's something yeah. new. Yeah, we learn a lot of uh, things that are new in this, pro- in this well, program. Well, that's what I'm here yeah. for, <laughs> 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 To give you tittle-tattle. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Unfortunately, mm. uh, it's limited to what I can share, but, mm. but, 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 but I do what I can. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it, uh, uh, the American uh, author and poet Albert Pike says, mm. What we have done for ourselves alone dies with us. What we have done for others and the world remains and is immortal. Mm. So what we have done for others and the world remains Im- is immortal. Mm. It's, very, it's very powerful and very mm. true as well. Mm. Uh, if you do things for yourself, what we're basically saying is that selfishness yes. is limited. We're yeah. sharing. And many people ask the question, about uh, why do you preach? Why do you want to convert people to your faith? Whatever faith it is. I think that's the spirit of it. Mm. That if it's something good that you believe it is, then in Islam it is said, share that good goodness with mm. others. Mm. So if you believe something and you believe in something and you believe it's good for you, then share it with others. Maybe they might find it good as well. Yeah, very yeah. true, very true. So it points towards selflessness, doesn't it? Yeah. Be selfless. Yes, exactly. Yes, yeah. Rather than selfish. Mm. Mm. 
And uh, death is inevitable anyway. Uh, mm. And we've seen what's happened in Morocco. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, we also had the sad demise of a contributor to our show, yeah. Asher yeah. Damri, uh, yeah. passed away very sadly yeah. a few days ago. Yes. Um, and, uh, Former Secretary Sharp, my boss. Yes, your mm. boss indeed. Uh, <laughs> very well known because of yeah. his uh, various uh, activities yes. in the community. He was a sportsman. Mm. Uh, led many of the early Khudamul Ahmadiyya UK sports activities. Yes. People know him, a, a lot yep. of people, uh, a lot of people were, meet, were meeting me yesterday, mm. reminiscing that this is how they came across Ashad for the first time. Okay, what, as, a, as somebody who was involved in sports? Uh, yeah, sports the, because of Khudamul Ahmadiyya, he used mm. to arrange Ishtamas and the sports activities yeah. during the Ishtamas. It was very low profile. Yeah. In the early days. Oh, yes. And when Ashad became the mm. sports secretary for Dabal Amdiya, he, he, he rose it up because he had a passion for mm-hmm. it. You know, he played mm. hockey, he played squash. He was one of the lucky ones who was offered to play squash regularly with uh, Zakhli Fatul Masih, the yes. fourth. I remember that. Time. Yeah, yes. I think there's one of uh, two or three people mm-hmm. who were chosen mm-hmm. who could play that. Mm-hmm. I had the opportunity to be on court with Zakhli Fatul Masih once, but mm-hmm. just for one short game. Really? And that was my lot, yes. Oh, I see. <laughs> I should uh, ask you for a photo- uh, autograph. <laughs> There's no photograph to prove it. <laughs> but, but believe me, I mean, it happened. Oh, it happened, okay. Yeah, yeah. You went by, by like a, like, you know, uh-huh. like a zooming car past right. your eyes. Did you yeah. win? Of course not. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm not saying that we weren't allowed to win, okay? Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> we had every chance to play. Anyway, uh-huh. <laughs> anyway what have we got on the show, Liz? Well, uh, first up will be the news review with Philip Gent um, to look at some of the top stories in the news this week. Mm. Uh, that will be followed uh, by facing focus to delve further into the life and claims of the uh, promised messiahs of Mr. Ghulam Ahmed, the founder of the Yambi Muslim community. And after the 11 o'clock news? We'll be joined by our French expert, Marouk Araf, who will uh, talk about her views of the recent ban in France of girls wearing the abaya in school. Our question is, how far is separating state from religion right without impinging on uh, on human rights? Mm, indeed, a good topic to be had. Mm. And uh, do, do we have Daniel Kalun, our Imam, Ask the Imam segment? Oh, yes. Uh, so, certainly having him. And um, uh, we are looking into some of the Islamic teaching to clarify the truths of Islamic dogmas. Uh, to some of the false impressions that have been made. Indeed. And Shahid, uh, for sports, what have we got? There's no premiership, so what's happening? No, yes, it's, uh, yeah, it's a drought, isn't it? A football drought, as <laughs> yeah, far as yeah. uh, many of uh, football fans are concerned. Anyway, uh, he'll be joining us to assess the European International Championship as England play Ukraine and other key matches, uh, also the Cricket Asia Cup is uh, taking place with India versus Pakistan. Uh, that's taking place today in the Super Fours round robin game. Yes, India Pakistan is probably the most watched hmm. single sport event in the world because really? yeah, because the whole of India mm-hmm. population of what oh. a billion, I don't know, yes, a billion, like, yeah, yeah, watching it. Yeah. Uh, most of it anyway. Mm. Pakistan population of six hundred million mm-hmm. watching it, and the diaspora in around the world right. all watching it. Mm-hmm. And cricket fans around the world watching mm-hmm. it. It's, 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 it is really one of the key sports. Okay, more than the no. World Cup final. I think the football so, yeah. World Cup final, yeah, no? I okay. think so, yeah. But, but you, you know, 
numbers are guesstimates. Okay, anyway, but it's yeah. a very, very big match. It's a big match. It's okay. a big match. Always, mm. even if it's a small match, it's still mm. a big match. If oh. you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Interesting, thought-provoking show. I hope in store for our listeners. And I hope, inshallah, they will contribute by commenting or sharing their views by phoning us on 028-687-7878 or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. Voice of Islam is uh, available on DAB radio, mobile, or live stream it on voiceofislam.co.uk forward slash live. This is the Weekend World Show with Asan Ahmadi. The views on the Weekend World Show are those of the individuals and guests. So, starting with our first segment of the show, which is the news review. Weekend World. Look at this week's news, views, and reviews. Uh, we need the BBC reports uh, a devastating earthquake in South Morocco, which has killed more than 800 people so far and has destroyed large across of, uh, areas across historical centre of Marrakesh. Many residents and tourists were forced to spend the night outside over fears of an aftershock worsening the situation in the city. Let's hear a news item about this uh, incident when it happened doubled, more than doubled since this morning, and that's to be expected as horrifying as it is considering that the earthquake hit in the mountains, and a lot of these mountainous villages are hard to reach. A journalist on the ground told us that buildings were collapsing on the mountainside, but also bits of the mountain have been seen as falling off. I mean, no avalanches yet, but just to give you an idea of how dangerous it is to experience an earthquake in those areas. And just next to the mountains, Marrakesh is the tourism capital of Morocco, where loads of people have been end of summer, you know, spending their times there. And, and the earthquake struck at 11 past 11 at night on a Friday night, where loads of people were in the clubs, in the bars, in the restaurants. And we were told on the ground that when the earthquake struck, people ran out of these establishments into the main road. And soon after the road, the highway to Casablanca from Marrakesh was packed with people wanting to get out of Marrakesh as soon as possible. Now, this earthquake is, is the most deadly and the first since 2004 when an earthquake hit. But that earthquake killed at least 600 and was nowhere near as strong as this 6.8 magnitude earthquake that is fairly shallow, quite shallow, and is expected to have actually caused a lot of infrastructural damage. So we do expect that the death toll will continue to increase throughout the day as more and more people are uncovered. So that was the devastating news that hit Morocco in Marrakesh, beautiful city. Um, You've been there? I've been there, yes. Uh, <coughs> went on holiday with my family. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marrakesh, lots of history there. Is it south of Morocco, is it? No, it's to the north, uh, central west. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, it's about a two-hour drive to the coast. Uh-huh. Um, so, but uh, oh, to Casablanca, I would have thought. Uh, but it's a beautiful city. It's near the Atlas Mountains. So you, from Marrakesh, you drive up into the mountains, into the Atlas Mountains. Mm-hmm. Uh, tried walking it. Uh, my kids carried on while mm-hmm. me and my wife <laughs> <laughs> rested. Not even halfway it was because it takes the it's very it takes the breath out very quickly because uh-huh. of the thin air. Uh, uh-huh. Because you already drive up to quite a high place, mm-hmm. and then you walk further up above it. There's some waterfalls to be seen and all that. Which mm-hmm. My kids so waterfalls. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's <coughs> mountains absolutely mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. where the water comes down to our okay. rivers from you know <laughs> but yeah beautiful city but devastating what's happened
happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, joining us this morning to discuss this heartrending story and other news from the world politics is Philip Gent, a Tory prospective candidate, possibly, uh, possibly this year, uh, next year, sorry, and a regular contributor to our show. Assalamu alaikum, Philip. Waalaikumsalam. Good morning to you, Hassan. Good morning, Valid. Uh, yes, 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 good morning. Uh, devastating news uh, with many, very many dead and numbers rising by the hour. Um, earthquakes are something you just can't control and uh, it does bring devastation. And uh, when it happens in the mountains, it's even worse. But the death toll is very high. Your views yes. on that, for Philip? Yes, indeed. Yeah, very, very tragic. In fact... Um, I was actually in Morocco about a month or so ago. Hmm. Uh, we we were based in in Marrakesh, and we went to Agadir and then to Ifitri, um, sort of you know all around this sort of where this earthquake struck. And as you say, um, it it is so 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 tragic, and you know it's it's come um, very suddenly, and the the people impacted are those in the mountains predominantly and you know you hear of villages being you know leveled and um they will take many years to to sort of recover from this so um i'm not aware of any international aid being called for yet Mm -hmm. but i would imagine as you say the death toll is rising and the magnitude of the um, or the scale of, of the devastation will manifest itself, and you know the expertise of the international community may well be called upon to hopefully save save lives, yeah. but also help help the rebuilding process. Um, but the center of Marrakesh, which is a UNESCO World Heritage Site, is it also is. I hear has been. Um, uh, damaged by the earthquake, and mm. that, that that's quite tragic as well. Yeah, the latest. I mean, I give the figures of uh, the of the news item that we read about six hundred, uh, uh, six, uh, yeah. about eight hundred dead. But the figures which are now being uh, given are more than two thousand people, and this is just from yesterday. The increase of numbers, uh, yeah. and the the uh, rescuers are scrambling. Uh, to find survivors of BBC reports because of the mountainous area. I've seen some of those villages when you go up to the Atlas Mountains. Uh, there's little industries taking place, uh, uh, people trying to earn a living out of it, and they're going to be devastated by this. They will. They will. And um, my my wife phoned, phoned Morocco and has been phoning in the last few days, and uh, people have have been sleeping in in their gardens and um, outdoors, mm. generally uh, in fear of um, the after aftershocks and the afterquakes um, that could potentially come as well. Um, so this may not be the end of the of the devastation. No, um, um, but it is. It is very tragic. It yeah. is very tragic. And, and in terms of uh, aid, etc., what do you think? Uh, will there be a need to, to, to give aid to to the people of Morocco? Uh, are the government planning anything to provide some help? Do you know, do you know of anything like that? Um, I'm not. Certainly, the FCDO has reached out to offer offer its support. Um, Morocco will have to sort of. Um, uh, reach out to the international community to request before the international community responds. Mm. Um, but as soon as as soon as they they reach out, I'm sure we will be ready to to offer our assistance.
distance, as we did um, to Turkey uh, uh, when yes, they had a, an earthquake recently. Aleppo uh, and places like that. Yeah, mm. yeah. And I, I guess one, 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 one contrasting factor is that the Turkish earthquake we saw, the buildings were quite quite tall, they were on many levels, yes. uh, whereas the buildings in, in Morocco do not reach such a height. No, you don't see the have... same level of uh, structures in, in, in uh, Morocco generally, especially uh, out right. in the mountains and out in the other places. The, the BBC are reporting that the tourist centre Marrakesh uh, has had significant damage, uh, yeah. but tremors were felt in Rabat and Casablanca, I believe. Any thoughts on uh, the, the, how to cope with such tragedies? No, it, <clears throat> um, I'm, I, was, I didn't know that uh, earthquakes happened in Morocco, did they? I mean, is that something that um, is... Um, uh, is it a dangerous area like it is, say, San Francisco, where we... Or in Pakistan, oh, where it yes. often happens as well, yeah. and, and Turkey regularly. Yeah. Uh, I know what you're saying. But so the news because, report... if it is, because if it is, then, yeah. you know, you would plan beforehand yeah. to, to construct yeah. buildings that, that can withstand those mm. tremors. Yeah, um, I think I think the news report that we heard was saying that there was a previous earthquake there, but we don't know how regularly mm-hmm, they mm-hmm. take place. But uh, in uh, when you go to Morocco, uh, you, you when you go into the mountains, you, there's not much you can do there, is it, in terms of the way you build? I'm actually amazed people have gone up into the mountains and build those little villages. That, it's amazing how they've done that. Mm. Uh, Philip, well, your thoughts? In, indeed, yes. No. Um, it, 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 and and the, the what 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 is tragic is that the people live very simple lives as mm, well. Indeed. Um, and they live off the land, and they they have their 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 animals, and they they farm their produce. Um, and it's not a. My experience, and I first went to America to Morocco in two thousand. Very simple people, but very happy in all corners of of Morocco. And and this will devastate a lot of them. You know, it will take them years and years to recover. Mm. And I, I I hope I hope that the the government of Morocco, which is opening itself up to increasing international trade, especially to you know the Anglo-Saxon world in particular yeah. now, yeah. it's pivoting more towards the Anglo-Saxon world that it does reach out and uh, accelerate the recovery. Mm. Yes, my experience very similar, very similar to Pakistan that the people live very simple lives, they're very happy, they're very helpful uh, and very welcoming. Uh, I found them very welcoming people in Morocco as well. But uh, let's pray uh, that may Allah uh, give them some hope and uh, be able to rebuild their lives back again and uh, give them a safe place to uh, live in. Right, uh, another story, uh, escaped terror suspect caught in London after a four-day manhunt, the Guardian reports, believe. Yes, Daniel uh, Khalif, uh, or Khalife, the former soldier who absconded from a prison kitchen by strapping himself to the underside of a delivery van, has been re- uh, recaptured. Yes, Khalif, 21, was arrested in Chiswick, West London, uh, on Saturday, having gone missing in the cook's uniform at the HMP Wandsworth in London on Wednesday morning. The Metropolitan Police said they had arrested him just before 11 a.m. on Saturday. He is being held in police custody. Khalifa was uh, not uh, described as dangerous to the public. Dominic Murphy, the Met's counterterrorism commander, emphasized that he has military training 
and that we have some of the best military training in the UK. Yes. Well, it didn't do him much good, did it? I mean, being captured in four days, <laughs> all that military training. It's not easy mm. to escape, you know. <laughs> <laughs> the way they escaped, mm. you know, it was like watching, a, it's like, you know, what you see this in comedy films, you know, on mm. TV, or some 1920s, 30s film, they show prison escapes, like, it's mm. a, when there was no high security, and, and it's happening in the 21st century. No, no, it's, no, it's quite no. hard to believe. But, but I just thought that when this was being mentioned again and again, that he has some of the best, we have some of the best military training in the UK, and he's hardly military yeah. trained. I thought the the, but the media training, didn't I, you? Do well, yeah, but I thought they were they were bracing uh, us for a long oh, call before we actually uh, capture him. Well, or, well it took uh, them four days, yeah. and the Metropolitan Police uh, exed. I would say, the, mm. uh, I would have said tweeted. Mm. By Twitter, Twitter is now called X. Uh, oh, yeah, Metropolitan X. Police exed. Mm. Uh, they said Metro, Metropolitan Police have arrested Daniel Khalif who escaped the HMP Wandsworth on 6th September. Officers apprehended him on the uh, before 11am today in Chiswick area. This was yesterday's news. And he is currently in police custody. We thank the public and the media for the support with the information and appeals. Um, Philip, another flaw in the Tory government's 13-year rule where people are escaping from prisons. Uh, is this all due to the lack of numbers, like the police numbers dropped? Now the police, the prison officers have dropped 15% in just the last year, and 85% of officers said there were not enough staff in the jail where they worked to engage in purposeful activities with inmates such as rehabilitation programs. What is the government doing about this? This is just a, uh, a laughing stock for the in the whole world. The Britain is becoming. I, I, I think pr the prisoner. We need to relook at how we deal with with prisoners. Mm -hmm. um, I, I certainly believe that um, prisoners and those who commit crime need to be given a second chance. Um, Indeed, there are, there this are, is what uh, this is what the purpose of prison is for rehabilitation, isn't it? Or tr attempt to rehabilitate people. Yes, but th I think the question is how efficiently and are, are these prisons serving their purpose? And indeed, are they serving the purpose that they were intended mm. for? Uh, and staffing has a big big role to play in that. Um, there are a limited number of staffs. In, and dropping, uh, that's the thing, is they are dropping. Uh, just last year alone, a drop of 15%, nearly oh, just over 600 police officers have left the, left the service. Right. It's not yeah. helping, is it? It's not helping, and it's a very, very difficult, mm. very, very difficult mm. profession to, to be in, you know, to, 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 to be working in those prisons. It is, it is indeed. It, it, it is very, very difficult. I, I do think we need to look at this again. Um, there are certain categories of prisoners who, who I, th I think the, the concept is, you know, that degree of punishment uh, should be applied that results in reformation. Hmm. Uh, but there is always a limit to the degree of punishment. Now, if if we're not achieving that reformation. Yeah. Or if that reformation can be achieved in another way, then we need to look at those different opportunities and mm. different ways of, 
of engaging with those who commit yeah. crime. Um, and I think, you know, some uh, we need to set up a commission perhaps to look at this. A lot of good work is going on in relation to bringing, you know, those who commit crime back into um, society yeah. in, a me- in a meaningful way, giving them meaningful jobs, mm-hmm. and giving them training opportunities. Yeah. Um, but we really do need to look at it because we are a humane society and the more humanely we treat people i believe we have a it results in a better society mm-hmm. and sometimes prison is not uh should not be um uh, the option there should be other options available perhaps that we need to look at more mm-hmm. more seriously it's not my area of expertise <clears throat> but at a high level conceptually that's that's where i would come to this I mean, putting people in prison seems to be the easy option. Yeah. It seems to be the default option. It seems to be things that, you know, that's what we do. Yeah. But there may well be other other avenues to explore. Uh, and if there are, then we ought to be exploring them. There's, there's a lot of... Sorry, was no, you to no, ask? No, I was going to ask, uh, Philip, but do you think that uh, this kind of thing is... A, a consequence of the Tory policy of poorly funding our services or not funding our services sufficiently, things like prison and things like uh, the NHS and uh, other services, having a small state. Do you think that's what, what the, what the um, underlying uh, issue is? The, I... I don't think that's I don't think that's necessarily uh, the case um, the pri- prison officers pri- prison officers if they are leaving they're leaving because of poor conditions poor pay longer hours yeah yeah um, that, that that's that that's right but mm. I, I don't I don't I don't think that's necessarily um, I don't think this, as I said, solution is necessarily uh, throwing more money at it. I think it's more a case of looking at what is the solution. How do we deal with those who commit crime in a humane way in the 21st century? I mm. think that really is where we need to be. And uh, you know, you, you could throw money at an issue and, and keep throwing money at an issue. So, for example, health. We could. We could throw money at the at, at health but surely should we be throwing money at preventative measures in relation to health or should we be putting money into treating people i think you know we need to be focusing on uh, people uh, living healthier pre- lives yeah preventative is certainly the best way forward uh, mm. prevention is better than cure as they say uh, so mm. but but money that doesn't mean we forget the cure as well Yes, exactly. So it's always a balance is, mm, is mm. where I'm, I think, where I'm coming from. And regarding uh, it's, and how one allocates those funds yeah. uh, is, is always always a decision that needs to be made. Um, the public sector estate, which includes, you know, prisons and the courts mm. and schools, we've, we've heard this week, and the hospitals. Yeah all need to be maintained of course they do and um there needs to be you know an amount set aside for you know the capital maintaining of of these these structures and and budgets are limited so mm-hmm. um 
They are, the, but, the, but but they still have not to uh, not to be forgotten, and they need to be dealt with. Uh, that's the role of the government, and they have to yeah. balance uh, their books accordingly and, and make sure proper funding is given where it is needed. That, 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 that's absolutely right. But, you know, we, we know that you know, if, if we are going to increase spending, then that, that has to be sourced from an increase in taxation. And in but Tories not a tax, uh, tax, taxation increasing government, and they always accuse Labour for increasing taxes. They, 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 they openly use that as a, as a, uh, a campaign against yeah, the Labour. Stick to beat them. Yeah, yeah, stick to beat yeah. the Labour Party mm. with. Yes, the tax burden has increased to record levels under the Tories, under our administration. (laughs) That's that's absolutely right. Mm. We have had COVID. We have had enormous amount of borrowing, you know, required to to look after businesses, to look after individuals during COVID. But that's affected countries all over. And remember, Britain was not the first country to bring in um, what was the payment called? Furlough. Uh, Italy did it before Britain and some of the other countries brought furlough before Britain brought it in as well. Yes, that, 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 that's right. So, you know, it's a set of circumstances that have come that, um, but generally speaking, um, innovation and giving people more freedom, mm. um, I think, does result in a healthier, more innovative society. Government mm-hmm. does have um, a responsibility to keep um keep society secure yeah. first and foremost that's okay. I, I totally totally agree with yeah. you with that. what what about the 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 gentleman himself uh, mr khalife um he he appeared in court in july charged uh with a, a couple of charges one of them was eliciting information about the armed forces it relates to him allegedly obtaining personal information from the Ministry of Defense because he worked in the computers, in computers and IT uh, area of that, uh, and possibly preparing an act of terrorism for which he pleaded not guilty. Uh, and then he was further charged for a hoax, uh, of perpetrating a hoax, uh, a bomb hoax uh, on December, uh, on January 2nd. He denies placing three canisters with wires on the desks with his accommodation, uh, which was uh, just a made up, there's no bomb there, etc. I mean, it doesn't seem to be like a high-level form of a terrorist, a terrorist attack. Uh, and there are, some people are arguing that uh, he should have been in a high-grade um, uh, prison, uh, whereas this is quite a, a low-level uh, act of crime as far as terrorism is concerned. I I don't know. I'm I, I'm not privy to no. to, to the detail, and mm-hmm. I, I probably you know a lot of the detail probably has not been made public. I would suggest yeah. in this case, um, I would say that given he has a military background and military training, mm-hmm. that would be the reason why he one of the reasons why he probably should have been in the higher, more secure prison mm-hmm. because you know it would equip. To, to potentially um, escape, mm. um, but without knowing the other the further details, and I'm sure there would be other. There's more to it than than's been published. Yeah. 
Uh, I, I, oh, indeed, we don't know the ins and outs of it, but uh, it still seems fairly low level. So I think the prison sentence that he got, uh, or, or the prison that he was allocated to, seems about right to what he was. He was not one who has acted uh, by using bombs and uh, killing uh, our, our personnel or innocent people around the world. Uh, right. So for that reason, but uh, just one last question or one last topic, uh, quick line. Are you glad that Nadine Doris has eventually gone? Uh, <laughs> yes, I think so. Very, very relieved. Uh, you know, her constituents I, uh, are, are very pleased. Uh, yeah, they're, they're, uh, they're, yeah, they're, they're cheering. <laughs> yes, and... Um, you know, let's hope that the mid-Bedfordshire by-election um, uh, results in a in a Tory victory. I, I certainly would be hooting for the the, the party to, to 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 win that one. Yeah, but um, as long as there's no unit charge issues, I'm sure the the, the Labour's going to take that seat quite <clears throat> easily and happily. <laughs> <laughs> All, yeah. Although you've got to remember, Boris Johnson, as a Tory mayor, was the first one to bring in the unit charge in London. Well, yes, in central London, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was good rationale for that, I think, in the sense that... But, but was... not for Labour. Well, you know, one wonders whether... And, and, and you know, there's quite a lot of discussion around whether the the ULES charge will bring about the benefits that it's intended to, to oh, bring no, they say, no, no, the, the research is very clear on it. It will. It will bring and, a healthier, uh, healthier environment. The, 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 I think that's just Tory spin. They might not be. There, there, there is also the point that it will bring in a, a hefty amount of income to um, uh, Sadiq Khan as well. Um, yeah, but but that money is not going to be used for really, really stuff. But it it will be brought in to help clean the environment. Surely you've got to be in favour of that. Absolutely, we're we're we're, we're very much in favour of. Good. Of so you support uh, Sadiq Khan, which is good to hear. Uh, right. Thank you very much. For <laughs> that is not what I said, but we we can end we can end on the note that we're 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 agreed on a healthy environment. I was trying to put words in your mouth. But <laughs> <laughs> yes, he's a budding politician, so he's That's not going right, to be yeah. that easily caught, is he? Yeah. So yeah. rather than have politicians like Nadine Dorries, right? Mm. We need politicians like Philip Jett, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 We're we promoting you here, Philip. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yes, but good, luck. Luck, good luck with your future. Yes, yes good luck. Pleasure to be on the show. Oh, yeah, great. And and if I may, Ashton Saab, you know, condolences in relation to Ashton Saab, a great man and uh, sorely missed. Thank you very much for your lovely thoughts, you. and it was good to see you yesterday Indeed. at the waking of also for the bereavement uh, gathering that we had at his home. God Thank bless. you. God bless you as well. Right, Willie, let's mm. move on to our next segment, which mm. is the Faith in Focus. Mm -hmm. We have been reviewing the life of the Promised Messiah in various in our episodes, uh, and we're continuing to do and examining the same. And we were looking at some of the Promised Messiahs, the, the Muslim member, the founder of the Muslim communities, qualities. Uh, the, prime, uh, the Promised Messiah never sought fame or publicity himself, mm. Mm. but something was forced into it. Uh, this is also very evident uh, when we study his life. Can you explain? 
explain a bit more on that? Yes. Um, so it's very important, I think, uh, that we are covering you know, this aspect of the life of the promised Messiah mm. because um, I think it uh, really is one that um, where we get an insight into his character and character is very, very important mm-hmm. when we are dealing with somebody who is making claims that he is from God. And as far as uh, this uh, uh, motivation that some people may think he had about seeking fame or publicity, that was certainly not uh, evident uh, in in his works at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had no love, in fact, for rank or position. If he sat in public or made addresses, it was only to fulfill the, the uh, command of God Almighty. And on one occasion he said, if God Almighty gave me a choice and asked whether I prefer seclusion or publicity, I swear by the holy being of God that I would choose seclusion. It was God himself who pulled me out into the public sphere. Who can know more than God the pleasure that I attain in seclusion? Yeah. I remained in solitude for almost 25 years and never once, even for a moment, did I desire to be placed on a seat in the court of fame. <clears throat> I am naturally averse to sitting amongst a group of people, but I am bound by the master's command to do so. And he further stated, when I sit in public or go for a walk and engage in discussions with others, I do all of this out of obedience to the command of uh, Allah Almighty. And this we will also uh, see is exhibited, uh, is something that is exhibited later on uh, during this uh, this episode of uh, this part of the program. Okay, so he was very, as you just stated, always uh, preferred seclusion, he preferred not to have the publicity, but he was very calm and collected if things went wrong. Uh, yes. Any incidents to relate in this regard? Uh, yes, uh, so there, there are a few and uh, uh, very interesting, in fact. Um, I, I think one of the ways that one can illustrate this is um, uh, talking about um, his prized possessions. Uh, I mean, these are related uh, to his work and his writings. I mean, this is basically what uh, he spent uh, his uh, time over, the majority of his time over, um, speaking, writing, uh, composing mm. uh, works in the defense of Islam. And we he worked very hard to compose his rebuttals against the uh, attacks being made against Islam and, and, um, and uh, worked very hard to demonstrate the supremacy of, uh, of Islam. And it is said that once um, his son, uh, Mia Mahmood, who was about four or five years old at the time, came into his room where he was working and started messing about, like children would do. With, uh, and uh, and uh, he was messing about with one of his manuscripts. And he had also been brought in some of his friends with him as well. Uh, and uh, the Promised Messiah was so engrossed in his work that he didn't take any notice of uh, their shenanigans, uh, what they were uh, doing. And then... Uh, if that was not enough, uh, one of the children, in fact, it was Mia Mahmood himself, who took some matches <laughs> and set light uh, to uh, one of his manuscripts Ooh. and rejoiced as, as they were reduced to ashes. Mm. And the promise was I so engrossed he was in his work that he still didn't take any notice. And it's only when he found need to resort to what he had already written that he discovered that this had been burned down by the children in his room. Mm. Now, on inquiring who had done this, one of the children piped up there, it was Mia Mahmood, and everyone feared that this would be curtains for the young child. But the, um, and again, this, uh, um, the way he treated him is also an illustration of how 
uh, what his philosophy was and how to how to bring up children. But that also is something that we'll cover later. But uh, the promised Messiah was not at all perturbed and remained calm. And having found out what had happened and who had done it, he simply smiled and said, "Wonderful it is! In this there is, uh, or in this there must be great wisdom of Allah. There was also now God Almighty desires to disclose upon me an even better exposition. So, even in this um, moment when I think people like you and me would uh, be extremely distraught mm. and um, angry, very quickly, yes, yeah. as to as to the, the effort we had made in mm. composing something that was really wonderful, or we thought it was really wonderful, and to have it reduced to ashes, uh, how are we going to do? Um, uh, how are we going to recompose something as good as that? Mm. But uh, the promised Messiah saw the positive side. Uh, you know, I drew out a positive message from what had happened. Um, so this is something that is very um, um, interesting and insightful. And another occasion when the Promised Messiah was writing uh, the book Al-Tablee, mm. he had penned a, a two-page exposition, which was uh, which was something that he was very um, happy with. You know, he had uh, he felt that he had done good work. And he handed uh, the, these papers to Hazrat Mawlu Nuruddin uh, to review. Now, unfortunately, uh, Mawlu Nuruddin um, actually dropped them when he returned home. And he was mortified. You couldn't find them. They searched. And uh, here and there and everywhere, they couldn't find the trace of this uh, uh, particular uh, article, this particular exposition that he promised Messiah was very happy with and uh, wanted uh, just uh, a final look over. Um, so these were, you know, important papers. And Mawlana uh, was overwhelmed with immense anxiety as to what the promised Messiah would say. So when eventually uh, he was or managed to tell the uh, promised Messiah uh, what had happened, uh, what was surprising that uh, is that the promised Messiah was not at all perturbed. Mm. Instead of remonstrating uh, Malwi Sabin, telling him off, he simply smiled. And the promised Messiah apologized to him for the suffering he had endured in looking for the papers. And he said, Malwi Sab, you have suffered such grief on account of the papers being lost. I regret that you have under- underwent such struggle and toil in search of these papers. It is my belief that Allah the Exalted will bestow upon me something better. Mm. So such was his demeanor. When something like his draft writings were damaged or lost in this way, yeah. he did not show anger and frustration at what had happened or at those who had accidentally done this, but sought his solace solely in God Almighty in the belief that this may have been the will of Allah and he would bless him with something better. So, I mean, there is this, I mean, we've suffered a bereavement. I mean, we were all very close to um, the departed uh, former Secretary Ashad. Ashad Amdi. And um, so this is also a message, I mean, that uh, we remind ourselves of, that, you know, we resign to the will of Allah when something tragic and something sad happens. Mm. It's to him, uh, we are from him and it's to him we belong. Uh, and is the fi- where it is to him that the final return is going to be. So I think that this was something that was current. This philosophy, this thinking was something color- current in the uh, in the attitude of the, of the promised Messiah. This is how he dealt with tragedies and setbacks. Mm. He resigned himself to the will of God and submitted himself to that. 
think he, uh, it's a lesson for us. It's a lesson for us. Mm. A very tough lesson yes. to adhere to because uh, we are mm. tested a lot yeah. in these regards. Yeah, when I was, I remember our days in Kenya. Uh, and recently, mentioned Kenya a lot. I know, I mm. know. Uh, mm. And then uh, when I go to Pakistan, I see this a lot. That you know, it's common to have help in the home. You have housemaids and servants, etc. You know, doing various. It's part of the economy. That's how the economy works there. So people, yeah. will, you know, who are well to do will have mm. that, and and doesn't mean rich to do that, but mm. just well to do, will have the house help because it helps people get jobs. Mm. But there can be very testing times because mm. to to manage those people is quite tough. Lots of issues with them. And if you're not on top of things, mm. you know, things can go missing in your home, etc. And and you have to be very stern. I've seen uh, the family head being very stern with, with their and uh, with their house servants mm-hmm. and sometimes I felt sorry for them. Sorry for them mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. How about the promised Messiah? Because he came from a wealthy family, but not yes. wealthy in the sense that they were the landowners, so yes. they would have been of those who would have a house servants. Yes. Doesn't mean they were rich. How was he with house servants? You know, because mm. that's where you find the character mm. of a person like, as mm. well. Well, his house servants were very testing. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> so this is uh, what we're told. We're told that, you know, they would, um, you know, repeatedly bother him. Uh, if there was something to do, they would ask him mm. again and again. Mm. Uh, instead of asking something that was going to be done, uh, and uh, questions relating to that in its entirety, they would come, uh, you know, after asking one question, they'll come after a few minutes, yeah. ask a second question, and then a third question, so on and so on. So this was uh, a bit uh, frustrating to the onlookers, but he was, again, uh, not at all uh, flushed by the, flustered by that. Mm. And as far as um, his treatment uh, of uh, work, household help was concerned, uh, we're told that he was never overbearing, overbearing to his servants, treated mm-hmm. his domestic staff with great kindness. Uh, if food was late, he would never admonish anyone, but just ate when it was ready. In fact, we said that his domestic servants and attendants had the use of the house and its provisions as if it was their own house. Uh, and when it came to forgiveness, well, it knew, knew, it, uh, knew no bounds once it is mentioned that he entered his home to find a great deal of commotion centered around one domestic worker. Apparently, this particular woman had been caught stealing rice. It was a sack of 15 kilograms of rice uh, she was trying to misappropriate. And uh, rather than punish her, as others were uh, paying for him to do, he forgave her and said, uh, she's in need, give her some rice, and do not shame her. Uh, follow God Almighty in the way that he covers up the faults of his, of his servants. So, it was very, very forgiving, and there's even a report of the same instance where he asked that she be given some extra because she was, she may have been in need of it. So that was the sensitive what, and forgiving nature. What are we to think? Yeah, what are we yeah. to think? Yeah. <laughs> you know, we would be looking for punishments. Oh yes, but he's saying give them more. Prison, because, man. Yeah, prison. That's right. Yeah, prison report. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we just said what happened mm. in prison. Mm. They, they don't work. But mm. this is the way to reform people. Yeah, yeah. So that was his attitude. Mm. Yeah. What about, uh, you, you, we've seen how forgiving he was to companions who made an error, etc. But uh, was he really sensitive about pointing out flaws in public? Because that is something, you know, if were you and me, if someone made a 
some comment about us. Mm. We would be seeking revenge by passing a snarly oh, yeah, comment, yeah. or you know, revenge must be taken. Oh in yes, words, right? Yeah, mark these words. Don't criticize the program. That's right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> How was the promised Messiah on that as- aspect of of uh, his character? Well, we're told that he he never made uh, double meaning statements, mm. you know, or cutting remarks to yes. others, or making gestures. That's the point I was making. Yeah, yeah. Uh, or making gestures to others about so- someone, you know, mm. with their eyes. You know, you're talking to somebody you don't like, and uh, you're making eyes at a different person. Uh, you know, denigrating uh, the person that you're talking to. So he did not do anything like that. He did not taunt anyone. I would address them in a manner that would be displeasing. Uh, he was genuinely sensitive to the feeling of all his companions. And this, we were told, was in accordance with the revelation he received. And incidentally, this is also a revelation in the Holy Quran, and, uh, and um, it was recorded in Ibrahim Hamdiya. And the verse translated, it is by the mercy of Allah that you are gentle with them. Mm. If you had been harsh and hard-hearted, they would have scattered away from around you. So the the underlying, I think, point that we have to recognize is that one of the key objectives or the duties of somebody who's sent by God is to reform people. Mm-hmm. And um, it is important that reformation is done in such a way that you do not uh, turn people off. Mm-hmm. You bring them closer to to you. So this is uh, what is um, why gentleness is so important. Uh, and it does not mean, you know, when we're talking about gentleness and talking about not saying things that are displeasing to others, does not mean that the promised Messiah did not attend to the reformation that he was destined for um, humanity, but that he did so subtly and mm. focused on major flaws rather than, you know, getting bogged down in little things. It is said that he would not arrest anyone directly and approach them if they committed an error or mistake. And one of the ways he brought their attention to their weakness was to deliver an address. But in general terms, uh, he would do it in such a way that the person to whom it was directed would understand. And the others would none be the wiser as to whether this was being pointed out for a particular individual. So it was a very, uh, it was a, a very cleverly uh, way that he managed to to uh, make people recognize their their faults, and no one was embarrassed or or have his dignity injured. But one important aspect of his reforming his followers was through prayers. And this is evident when he described uh, uh, the way that he used to pray, or one of the ways he used to pray. He said that I have made it compulsory upon myself to make certain prayers uh, on a daily basis. Firstly, I pray for my own soul, that God may use me for such work by which his honor and glory is manifested, and may he enable me to act in a manner that fully displeases, uh, that fully pleases him. Then I pray for the members of my household, that may Allah and the exalted grant me the delight of my eyes through them, and that they may tread the path of his pleasure. Then I pray for my children, 
that they may all become servants of the faith. Thereafter, and this is the relevant bit, mm. thereafter I pray for all my sincere friends by name, and then I pray for all those who are part of this community, whether I know them personally or not. And he went on to say, it is unlawful for such a person to take the seat of a spiritual guide and leader who is negligent of his followers for even a moment. So this shows how mindful he was of the good development of his followers morally and spiritually. And the main tool he employed was prayers. Hmm. One of the things that comes across to me is that uh, when you look at his life and you look at his behaviors and his approach to things, it's a it's a reflection of what the Holy Prophet did yeah. in his time, yeah. and uh, and he has brought bad Islam to us mm. that was practiced by the companions mm. of the Holy Prophet yeah. yeah, no, there is it was a very telling remark you make because you know he always said that he had he was the shadow of the Holy Prophet, yes. the Zilli Prophet, you know? Zilli Prophet, yes. yes. So, the, exactly, I think the, it's a very telling remark you've made mm. that he was very much uh, like a, um, a reflection of the, of the Holy Prophet. The Holy yes. Prophet, yes. yeah. Yes. Uh, sometimes they use this as a criticism, those mm. who are against the promise of Zion, mm. a shadowy prophet, mm. you know, a shady prophet, mm. they know they call it. But, but they don't understand the meaning no. of that. No. And I think if they look at the true character and the, the example of the promised prophet, mm. they would see the life of the holy prophet's life. Yes, absolutely. Yeah? Yeah, it's so and true. that is what the pious heart mm. will, will mm. show you. Mm. An unpious heart will not show you that. Just absolutely, like Abu yes. never recognize mm. the holy prophet. Yeah, right, right. Let's go to the 11 o'clock news. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed. Weekend World on Voice of Islam. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Welcome back to the Weekend World Show with Asana My co-host is Willie Ahmed, and joining us for this second half of the show is our young Imam, Daniel Kalon Saib. Uh, and the f- format of the segment is that if there's questions that are bugging us, we can ask our Imam, resident Imam here. Uh, we're going to start uh, this discussion, uh, Daniel. Welcome, by the way, uh, once again. Uh, we, we're seeing in Pakistan um, this regular attacks on the Amdiya Muslim community, um, and particularly the destruction of mosques. Now, as far as I know, the Quran has a very clear guidelines about protection of places of worship. Can you expand on that a little bit, what that is, and then we'll discuss what is happening in Pakistan. Of course. um, So I believe that the fundamental teaching of the Quran with regards to places of worship um, is actually in the context of uh, jihad, right? Mm. So the verse which was revealed... Yeah. When the Muslims were being persecuted, that those people who were being persecuted, uh, they have been given permission to take up arms. And the verse, it's it's quite a lengthy one. It mm. goes on to say, so that the mosques and the churches and the synagogues can be protected. Mm. So there's a very profound lesson for lesson for Muslims there, there that it's not just mosques that we need to protect. It's not just mosques which are important places of worship because yeah. God is being worshipped in whatever form it might not be the correct way or whatever but at least uh, there is a place of worship 
um, where a congregation is gathering to worship mm. God, especially the Judeo-Christian God, um, the, the monotheistic version of God, um, who is essentially the same God as the God of Islam. Yeah. So what I'm trying to say here is that that's the condition during warfare, right, during jihad. Mm. So during peaceful days, mm. right, times of peace, you can just imagine how much more important <clears throat> it is to keep the sanctity of such places, not just yeah. such places, just generally people's homes as well. Mm. There's so many, there are so many conditions with regards to Islamic warfare where uh, there's a huge list of what you can and cannot do. For example, you cannot um, intentionally destroy or cut down trees. You cannot intentionally um, harm any elderly people or kill any women and children. Uh, you know, there's there's so many conditions of war yeah. within that Islamic um, framework which unfortunately it seems that the extremists these days against the Ahmadiyya community, community but also generally against um, non-Muslims, they don't take that into consideration. First and foremost, they're under the um, misunderstanding that they are at war with the so-called non-believers, whereas they're not, they shouldn't be at war, right? There's no reason for them to go to jihad. So why are they uh, doing all of this in the first place? And secondly, I think the important, it's actually quite interesting. So... This morning I saw a video on Twitter where the Hindutva mob, obviously just as the extremist Muslims are persecuting Ahmadis and Shia and Baha'is and whatnot in Pakistan, in the same way the Hindutvas are persecuting Muslims in general Muslims, in right. India. Yeah. Right? So it's essentially it's a mirror reflection of what they're doing. Mm. And uh, it was showing how Hindutva mobs were desecrating and destroying Sufi shrines. Now, whether we believe, obviously, we don't believe that there's any spiritual aspect to a Sufi shrine as such, um, that such as the Deobanizio Barelvis believe, we don't believe that. But whatever the case is, those Hindutva mobs went there with the intention of desecrating what they thought to be an Islamic place of worship or an Islamic place of gathering. So it's actually an attack from on their behalf against Islam, just like the extremists are attacking our mosque whether they accept it to be a mosque or not that's irrelevant it's a place of worship and they don't realize that they're literally just mirror, mirroring the acts of the hindutva mobs and then when they when the hindutva mobs do it um to them to the muslims in india mm. then they complain so you know it's it's a point of reflection that you know you shouldn't uh, yeah uh, but um, imam daniel i mean how do you reconcile the verse that you recited about which clearly indicates uh, protection for of those places of worship with what is suggested in certain history books about the Holy Prophet's instruction about destroying a mosque, the Masjid al-Zarar. Hmm. And that is where uh, some of the Muslims are taking their lead from when they, they decide to desecrate uh, Amdi Mosque. So what is the story behind that? Yeah, that's, that's a good point actually. But the interesting part here is that the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, unlike all other Muslims, was in 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 a form of direct communion with God Almighty that we don't, obviously don't um, enjoy. Um, and because of that, God Almighty had already informed the Holy Prophet during his lifetime that this mosque is a place where all of this... Um, uh, Dissension and uh, yeah, intrigue exactly. yeah, is, is happening. So uh -huh. it, was a, it, was a, it was an instruction to the Holy Prophet and his companions to, to destroy that mosque, right? And that's mentioned in the Quran as well. So that holds, Masjid al-Zarar is mentioned in the Quran, so that holds okay. um, its own significance in its own place, right? As you mentioned, there's con context behind all of this. So that in itself, we cannot mix it up with the 
with the jihad verse because that was a separate instruction for the Holy Prophet ﷺ, and it was a specific instruction as well. And it was just, in a way, for Muslims, it, it was also a lesson for future generations not to repeat such a mistake of creating a mosque purely for, with the intention of spreading dissension uh, within Islam. And, and I believe it, in order for that lesson to be materialized, such a mosque, God Almighty, through his divine decree, had allowed such a mosque to be built and then whatever happened to happen and then the Holy Prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him was set and his companions were sent to destroy that mosque so yeah. I, I don't see any contradiction um, contradiction, contradiction uh, in that because because of that <coughs> specifically okay. and we're talking about places where God Almighty is being worshipped right um, so the synagogues as I mentioned synagogues and churches even though they may not be worshipping God in the same manner as us or uh, they may not be calling God with the same name as us they are places of worship um, where generally these places, they're not really places of gathering for dissension or for causing harm to other groups. They just focus on their own worship generally. So that's what needs to be protected. And, and, with, regards to, and, and with regards to the destruction of the idols inside the Kaaba, uh, that was because uh, the Kaaba was always built as a house of God for the one God. Yeah. And it had been taken over by idols hmm. so that is why they were destroyed because they were never designed for those it was always for the purpose of yeah. I, is that the right way to look at that absolutely and bringing the Kaaba into this is also very important into this conversation because we're looking at the Muslims who are trying to destroy other places of worship right mm. they don't understand they don't learn from our own history that the whole incident of um, Ashab al-Fil of the people of the elephant mm. was that Abraha the um, viceroy of of uh, Najashi, Yemen. the Negus yeah. of oh. Yemen, exactly. Okay. Yeah. He, so he was a sovereign of Yemen under uh -huh. the rule of Negus, who was um, in part under the rule of the Eastern Roman em Emperor. But through his own accord, um, uh, Abraha decided to go and destroy the Kaaba. Hmm. He didn't want it to be the place of gathering for uh, people, the place where they would perform pilgrimage. He wanted to create his own Kaaba type of gathering place his own church which are, which would become the center of pilgrimage for worshippers so he went out with that intention himself and we saw how god almighty humiliated him and absolutely disgraced him he couldn't even touch um, the walls of the kaaba the the cloth of the kaaba he didn't even get close to it right god almighty through his own means through his, through his own supernatural means destroyed um uh, the enemy and in in that way there's also a lesson for ahmadi muslims um, suffering in Pakistan and also for Muslims, general Muslims suffering in India. Uh, we can see the example of the grandfather of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, um, Abdul Muttalib, who showed such um, steadfastness in, in the face of such a huge army and enemy where he wasn't even worried. He wasn't even, uh, he didn't even break a sweat, mm. you know, mm. um, where he all he requested from Abraha was for him to return his flock of camels and right. sheep to him, right? Yeah. Um, saying that that's my property and I want to take care of it, so return that to me. And Obraha was shocked. Uh, what about the house of your so-called God, God? Don't you want to protect it? And he said, that's God's house. He'll protect it, right? So he had that much tawakkul. He had that much faith. Trusting God. Trusting yeah. God, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and we should also learn from that, that, yeah. you know, have some trust in God. Uh, and this verse that we were discussing from the Holy Quran, which is chapter 22, verse 41, where Allah says, those who have been driven out of their homes unjustly only because they said our Lord is... Allah, and if Allah did not repel some people by means of others, meaning to stop those attacking, then surely 
they would have been destroyed cloisters, churches, synagogues, and mosques wherein the name of Allah is oft remembered. Remember, Allah in this context, meaning anyone who believes in the one God, because we believe one God is Allah. That's our name for it. Jehovah's have different names, and everyone else have different Absolutely. names, but it's the same God. What this really means is that it is incumbent upon a Muslim state to protect the rights of others. Yeah. Right? Uh, and Pakistan being a republic, calling an Islamic republic, are going against what the Quran is teaching by allowing uh, the mosque of Ahmadis to be des desecrated, even if they don't want to call it a mosque, which yeah. is their choice. Let me tell you, let me read uh, from the Dawn newspaper. This is yesterday's Dawn uh, right. newspaper. Uh, in Lahore, it says, the Lahore police on Friday demolished an arch and minarets of a, of a place of a, of a worship place of the Ahmadiyya community in Shahdara town. According to the Ahmadiyya community, approximately 15 to 20 policemen arrived at the place of worship and instructed them to demolish the arch, arch themselves. I mean, there's more to it. Mm. But this it's, is state-driven. This is state-driven. This is right. the point I'm bringing. That uh -huh. Islam, Pakistan is an Islamic state, mm -hmm. and if the police who are an authority within the state are doing this act, and there are reports of others as well, that mm. the police have been either involved or allowing it to happen while they're in the They've process, been idle. Right? Yeah. It's mm -hmm. the same thing. Yeah. So Pakistan as an Islamic state is mm. acting against the very principles taught in the Quran. Of, of being an Islamic state. And, and it's actually sad as well because, um, unfortunately for some uh, well-meaning uh, Pakistanis, mm. you know there are people that like y you see subtle um, subtle points where where someone isn't uh, okay with what's going on. They m they're not necessarily mm. Ahmadi, mm. right? They can be just a general Sunni or, or, or whatever, right? And they're not okay with it. For example, mm. they didn't want these houses of God to be destroyed, so they said sure. pre nineteen seventy three, okay. I believe, or seventy four, those uh, minarets cannot be destroyed by law, okay. right? So you see that there there are some there is some goodness. It's just <coughs> it's being outweighed. Right, uh, we're going to come back to this. Mm -hmm. uh, we have Maruk Arif waiting oh. for us as well. Right. Um, slightly later than we, we had planned. Uh, our apologies for that. Uh, but uh, as far as uh, the discussion we were going to bring Arif into was what's happening in France with the ban of the buyers, etc. Uh, and then maybe we'll get uh, you know, Daniel Saab to give some comments on that. As you know, in France, Valid, uh, yeah. what has Lamont uh, stated in that in the headline? Well, it's stated that French uh, Education Minister Gabriel Attal, uh, Attal uh, justified the decision, this is the decision about the about citing a violation of French secular laws. Uh, the decision has reignited a long-standing debate in France over religious freedom and civil liberties. Yes, and, and there's more on the story, but uh, let's go straight to Marouk. Marouk is uh, uh, a French expert on our show. She is originally from Paris, now based in Newcastle, and is the author of Ahmadis and Muslims' Identity in Diaspora, and also the women's editor of the Review of Religions and a regular contributor on our show. Good morning, Assalamu alaikum, Maruk, and our apologies for bringing you on a bit later than we anticipated. Good morning. No worries at all. I, I, I do know you have another appointment, so we, we won't uh, waste time and uh, we won't uh, make it too late for you. 
because we don't want you to miss your next appointment as well. Uh, Maruch, the further ban on the Muslim women can, what women can wear in state schools in France, how does that fit with the French motto of liberté, égalité, excuse my French, fraternité, which is liberty, equality, and fraternity? How, how does that fit in with that freedom of expression? Uh, well, clearly it doesn't. Um, <laughs> can see that uh, fraternity until until uh, Muslim girls are concerned or Muslims in general are concerned. Mm, mm. Um, what has happened uh, right now with the Abaya ban is another, you know, uh, I think I, I saw an article yesterday where the author was saying back to school means another debate about secularism and Islam for France. Yeah. And that's exactly he was so on point when he was saying that whenever it is back to school September, mm. there's other you know controversy about Islam in France. But this one, uh, I mean, you have to say anybody, any external reader would be completely amazed at how. Um, excuse me for being very frank, but how stupid this ban is. Uh, when you are linking the abaya, which is traditional attire, cultural attire, to the religion of Islam. And then you have the national president coming on, t- like, on a, like stating very clearly that we want the abaya to be banned, and he's linking that to you know the murder of the three years ago to Samuel Paty, the teacher who was mm. stabbed in school. So he's linking a, a traditional garment, which is a long robe, right, which has nothing to do with Islam as per se. Uh, it's a cultural attire that most North Africans wear. Uh, so he's linking back to terrorism and then making a whole law about it and then depriving some girls from wearing long skirts from school and then sending them back home is extremely dangerous. It's, it's something that has never happened. And I think uh, we can we can clearly say right now that I, I'm, I'm, as a French, you know, citizen, mm. I can say that France has completely lost the plot right now. It's, it seems to be uh, a case of scaremongering uh, and it seems to be pandering to the far right, which has gained great prominence in France in recent years, uh, almost to the f- uh, fact that they might nearly they might they nearly won the last elections. Right. So, well, what this is doing is it's not really a favor to you know. I mean, Macron has been criticized times and times again. And mm-hmm. He was meaning his political was going to the far right, and it it is to the far right voters, you know, yeah. because. He's clearly very unpopular, uh, Emmanuel Macron. If you, if you look at his policies in general, I mean, at the yellow vest, he's had a, a pension reform. He's had so many on his mandate that is making him so unpopular right now that they would go to any extent, you know, to um, to uh, woo and seduce the far right voters. But mm. what this is creating is extremely dangerous because it encourages ethnic profiling of. Uh, young girls. Mm-hmm. It is sexist. It is a very sexist law because you're primarily concerned about how women are dressing, and uh, their dressing has nothing, you know, vulgar or something that would um, not enable them to study properly in schools. Uh, but what the abaya ban is essentially, if you turn up with a long robe, you know, yeah. at school, how would you be able to determine uh, that this? She, this girl belongs to the Muslim faith or not. You would just look at her faith, right? And you would just judge and determine by her faith or by, by her what, what she appears to be 
uh, if what she's wearing has something to do with religious affirmation or not. So if, if a non-Muslim white girl is wearing a long robe, you would probably let her go, but you would not let, you know, uh, someone from an ethnic background come in with a long robe. So it's, it's extremely discriminatory. It encourages racial and ethnic profiling, which is extremely dangerous. Uh, Maruch, are you saying that uh, it's not just the abaya that is banned, it's any long dress? Is that, is, am I understanding you correctly? Any no, long dress, it's a, it's a maxi it's, skirt, and that's also banned, is it? Right, right. So, um, you know, the French government always looked upon at long um, skirts as well. For the longest time, we've had debate on that as well, uh, whether long skirts should be allowed um, in schools. So now with the abaya, what essentially it says is that it just says abaya, so it's very vague. Uh, this is what a lot of lawyers also have pointed out, that you know the term abaya is, is very vague. How, how do you define an abaya? Mm. And because that term is not even French, uh, abaya means a long robe, which is worn mostly in North Africa. And... So there's, there's some girls, some cases of girls who came at school wearing, you know, a, a very colorful long robe and they've been sent back home. But now the very interesting um, point here is that all of them were from North African descent. So this is where it becomes extremely racist and extremely discriminatory mm. because you are unable to identify who are you going to let in and who are you going to... It's very... Um, uh, what do you call it... Um, it's not very uh, clear and precise. It's like mm, blurred. Blurred, yeah. yeah. Mm. So, so what would happen, uh, Maruch, if a Muslim girl wore a long black coat, coat which is bought from uh, a fashion shop in, in town? Mm. You know, it, it, would, that, would that be allowed for her to wear? You know, so what determines what an abaya is as a fashion item or, yeah. or as a religious item? That's exactly the point. We don't know. Yeah. Um, it's completely up to the person who is, you know, sitting in front of the school. If he decides one day, one morning, that, oh, I'm not going to let that, uh, I'm, I think this is an abaya, then this is an abaya. Because he's in power and he, he has the authority to say that, okay, he has the authority to send you back home. Hmm. So, girl has have contested these decisions, yeah. but it's completely absurd because if, if a Muslim girl is not even, so now it's not even about the headscarf. Yeah. It's about... It, it's one step further. So, because they have banned now the headscarf, mm. um, but you know, I, I feel like somehow they just want Muslims to stop being Muslim. So now they've gone onto the dressings as well. Uh, so, if a girl, as you say, is wearing a long black coat, which is a fashion coat, uh, maybe they would let her come in, or maybe they will say, you know, oh, this is borderline, looks like an abaya, so no. But you know, in France, now lawyers wear a long robe as well, and there's Thousands of people. <laughs> there's a lawyer. She's a French lawyer, French girl. She's saying that. Oh, I, I may have to uh, take off my abaya before I go in court. Yeah. But this is it's completely absurd. So what? What a Muslim girl could do? She could wear one of those gowns that the lawyers wear. <laughs> I mean, I, <laughs> she could try. That's the challenge, you know. <laughs> That's all that is left. Either you try, you lose. There, there was a lovely letter to the Times uh, by uh, a young Muslim lady. Independent, independent. Independent, right? was yeah, it? Yeah. Uh, Yusra Dari. 
Um, and she says that as a Muslim, I believe that it is a duty to obey the law of the land in which we live. So uh, she's put that on the outset. Uh, but she objects to the ban uh, on the basis of religious freedom. And then she carries on saying that uh, Islam requires modesty, uh, but allows beauty to co- coexist as well. Uh, but she says uh, as a fashion item, she can go to a, a modern shop uh, in, in any of the British shops, which she does regularly, and buys these modern uh, attires, but modestly address, uh, uh, attiring herself. Uh, and how can such a ban be allowed? Right, right. But that's when so the problem is that when you're you when you're saying that it's my religion, it, it, it goes against religious freedom. Mm-hmm. Essentially, being with them that the abaya has something to do with religion, whether. It's does not really pleasing with religion. Abaya is a cultural attire. It, it is nowhere to be seen in the Quran. It is to be seen that you have to dress modesty, of course. Yes. But the, the you know the specific garment is not abaya. It, nowhere is said so, to be a good Muslim girl. You have to wear an abaya. Mm. No. Mm. no, correct. I have to agree with the um, yes. sister here because, uh, as she mentioned, this is a specifically a North African attire which actually originated about a century ago. Um, in North Africa, the, the form of a buyer that we know mm, of today. Mm. So it's not a dress which originated 1400 years ago during the time yeah. of the Prophet, peace okay. and blessings of Allah be upon him. Um, so I think that is a very, very yeah. important yeah. distinction we need to make. Indeed. So is it okay then, uh, Maruk, for the Muslim girls to go in without an abaya? Because this has been left to the head teacher's decisions now, isn't it? Yes, it is left to the, not even the head teacher, you know, the person who is standing in front of the school. Oh, right, okay. So he's the one. Then after the yeah. but it's a really important to say here right now yeah. that this is not about religious freedom. This mm. is about hum- your human rights, and it's about women's rights as well. This is very sexist to dictate a woman how to dress. Okay. And also, also it's very important to point out here that Muslim women. I mean, this this law is completely outrageous, and you have to condemn it because it's outrageous and ridiculous. Mm. But you also have to point right now that Muslim women do not need an abaya mm-hmm. to dress modestly. They can dress perfectly modestly Correct. as much without an abaya. It has nothing to do with specific Islamic culture. Mm-hmm. No, separate. Abaya is a cultural dress, and Islam is a religion that does not teach you you have to dress specifically like this. Yeah. Because when we say that, when we say that, you know, it's a question of religious freedom, we are agreeing with the underlying, you know, um, uh, prejudice of that law that says that abaya is linked to Islam and therefore terrorism, yeah. which is really wrong. The, the, and the, that, that is where the big issue is, isn't it? It's being linked to terrorism or as a uh, as an attack on Islam, and it's just got nothing to do with that. Exactly. What about, because the French laws get very confusing to me. Uh, every time I read something, I, I get more confused in what the actual law is. What is the situation with with Jewish kippah or the Christian cross or the Sikh turban? Uh, are they allowed to wear those or are they banned or are they free to wear that? What What's the situation with all of that? Right. So the 2004 law mm-hmm. bans visibly religious signs. So the Sikh turban, uh, the Jewish kippah, mm. the French veil, and a very big, um, you know, Christian cross that you can visibly see. A, is sm- a small one is okay? Um, 
to, you know, if it if it's visible or if it's not visible. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, okay. So, given given the state of France right now, I I feel that even that's going to be a debate. You know, even right. you know. George Michael's it, cross would be very <laughs> forgiven. That would be forbidden. Wouldn't it? Yeah, the one he had in his ear. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry, we were just discussing one of the pop stars who died. Mm. He used to wear a big cross earring. You know, mm. so that wouldn't be allowed. But mm. yeah, so we're going back to this topic of other religious uh, symbols. What's what's happening with those in France? What's allowed and what's not allowed? So th- these are either in school. In school, these are not allowed. Mm-hmm. But nobody has gone to the extent of, you know... <laughs> Carrying that out strictly. And, you know, saying that this has something to do with Islam or this is completely... And, you know, targeting... What you, what you have to really understand here is that the Muslim veil concerns mm. women only. Yes. Six and then the kippa, it, it doesn't concern only women. It's like it's primarily concerned as well. Mm. But with uh, with the whale and then the abaya mm-hmm. and then the burkini and then you know all the all these <laughs> con- it it just targets women. It only does. women. Yeah. Yeah, and specifically the abaya is specifically targeting the the Islamic mm. religion. Maruf, your line has been breaking up quite a bit, so a little bit on the reception side we've been struggling with, but uh, let's carry on just a little bit more and see how we we, we feel. In, in, in terms of this ban, one, it is only in state schools, is that correct? If there was an Islamic school or a Jewish school or a Sikh school, they would don't have to adhere to that ban because it's up to the teachers who decide it. And number yeah. two... It is up to the teacher uh, to determine whether they want that person wearing it. So a child could wear the uh, the, the abaya in and around the school, but not in the class in which the teacher is teaching. Right, right, right. So this is what you know most Muslim girls do uh, with the headscarf as well. Mm. They take it off at the entrance of the school, at the entrance of the building, and then they put it back on uh, once they go out. Okay, uh, but uh, w- what I wanted to know, Maruk, I mean, France is notorious for passing uh, laws like this uh, that are w- we would contend are Islamophobic. I mean, does France particularly fear Islam? Does it perceive Islam as a threat? Is it something that is growing uh, in popularity in France, and that is it, what it wants to suppress? Um, so the, the the last few years, because there's been some uh, attacks on the French soil, uh, it has given you know um, it's given a little more hype than before. But in 2004, when that ban was introduced, there was no such thing. So it's been there for a very long time without any significant reason. Because what it what it claims is that it creates communautarism, uh, where there's a um, you know, um, it, it creates like sep- uh, that's why Emmanuel Macron said it's a separatist uh, religion. That it, 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 Islam, sort of what he was saying, uh, doesn't let you socialize or doesn't let you uh, merge into religion and doesn't embrace republican values. Whether it's absolutely non- not true, uh, what Muslim women have argued after the ban of the headscarf is that. If you do not allow them, if you do not give them the religious freedom to wear the headscarf and, you know, find a job or um, um, attend social gatherings where the, the headscarf is banned, 
how do you want you know you're you're creating the the contrary mm. when you're banning all these things yeah. you are actually creating communita- communitarianism when you're saying telling them you just stay apart because you're not allowed here and then you expect them to still be vocal to still be you know um incorporating and merging into uh, the french republic it cannot happen because you're not allowing them to so i i've moved to for example newcastle here it's in the uk i wear my headscarf and i go about doing everything i can find a job i know that i can find a job and i won't be discriminated for that mm. but in front sadly you will be discriminated confident as you are and as educated and as intelligent as you are they will not value your intellectual capacity they will just look at what you have on your head and mm. this is where the problem is because you cannot then be an active part of the society The United Nations uh, has uh, criticized the French. Uh, Marta Hurtado said she's the UN ONHCHR uh, spokesman. She said that uh, it's worth recalling that according to international human rights standards limitations on manifestations of religion or belief including choice of clothing were only permitted in very limited circumstances including public safety public order and health or morals in addition under international human rights law measures adopted in the name of public order must be appropriate necessary and proportional a further point was that achieving gender equality requiring understanding the barriers that prevented women and girls from making free choices and creative environment which supported their own decision making including but not limited to the choice of dress so uh, the united nations is concerned that those things are being restricted to muslim women right France doesn't really care but but that's the question who listens to the United Nations nowadays Israel doesn't uh, the West doesn't the old views what suits them the best uh, Maruk thank you very much for sharing your views and thoughts and clarifying some of the very important points um, and we uh, uh, hope that the French come to their senses and uh, allow that freedom that they call in their in the nation be granted to the girls who wish to wear the hijab job out of their own choice thank you very much thank you so much thank okay. you so uh daniel uh anything else to add to what maru was saying yeah actually um uh the last point that she made the sister made was a very good point because i was just about to ask her uh, what the my apologies i should have let you ask no her. no no because <laughs> she actually answered it with okay. her last point right. right so um but but i think it's worth highlighting that point that what is the sentiment of what's the grand reality mm. of the muslims in france because when such laws are being passed right uh, whether they're anti-islamic or uh, racist or whatever category they they fall under but if you're being oppressed right we literally just discussed um uh, you know the verse but obviously in this in this sense jihad's like physical warfare would not be permissible but that there is another option for muslims and that's hijra right that's migration mm. um and that's what the early muslims did in mecca when But they that what the french are trying to do uh, maybe maybe <laughs> they're, they're trying to exactly maybe they're mm. trying to but then i i doubt it because they know mm. that the economy would collapse because mm. what is it, is it 10% of of france is now of north african descent right so if not more yeah if not more mm. so mm. I, i they and that's a lot of labor as well so I, i'm sure they wouldn't want them to leave um as such but as the sister mentioned she herself she had the opportunity to migrate and she felt like she she needed to so she did migrate and mm. also a lot of other people have migrated back to their home countries because of this this ban so 
Um, the Muslims there, I, I really do wonder, you yeah. know, is it because they don't have the opportunity financially to migrate or, you know, mm. what is the reason? It's very, um, hmm. it's very difficult to live in in, su- in such a country under such circumstances. Uh, 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 in a way, Should they come here? Hmm? The UK is is known for its religious mm. tolerance. Yes, isn't it? it is. I mean, we, I think Britain has to be regarded as one of the most tolerant nations yes. in the world because yes. people are given that freedom, and that yes. is why the Promised Messiah, prays Queen Victoria, uh, that he, under her rule in India. Muslims and all other faiths could practice their faiths freely mm. without the hindrance of state interference. And under those rules, Christians, Jews, Hindus, everyone was able to do so. Mm. Now, it's, it's many non-Ahmadis criticized Promised Messiah for for supporting because, uh, the, the, uh, the, the monarch, but they are the ones who are now in Britain <laughs> yeah. enjoying that freedom. Exactly. Because that's not available in, in, in those countries. No. And exactly. the other thing, and the other, other thing that uh, sort of highlights from that to me is that if people start to leave the country because of these laws, and look at Marukh as an example, mm. she's a very intellectual lady. Uh, highly skilled and knowledgeable beneficial member of society of society and it's cause it will cause france to have a brain drain as they call it of people of intellect leaving the country going to other countries Mm. where others Mm. will benefit this is what happened uh, during germany when a lot of the top scientists left germany to come to america and britain Hmm. And those countries have benefited from yeah. those. Yeah. So even even to this day, they're benefiting from yeah, uh, uh, their contributions. Absolutely, right? uh, uh, and then, the space race and everything. Yeah, and and in hmm. the in the poorer countries like Pakistan, where m- most of the Ahmadis are well educated, and they're having to leave that country, a country that the that benefited from Ahmadiyya, the other Abdul Salam, Professor yeah. Abdul Salam, the great scientist. His name has been given to one of the libraries at the. Imperial Univers- College University, mm. the most prestigious science university in the world, I would have thought. Mm, mm. And in Pakistan, they removed his name from one of the university's mm. whole na- names. Mm. Yeah. You know, th- this is the impact, and, the, the, and people don't realize this. So uh, France will come to think of this, I'm sure, in the future. What do you think? For sure, definitely. And I think the biggest irony in this situation is that this ban is... Uh, within religious, uh, within educational institutes, mm. within schools, right? And the irony here is that they don't want um, girls covering themselves in loosely modest clothes um, in educational institutes, but then at the high end of the educational institutes, when they're graduating from university, mm. the, they, were, they wear the same robes, right, which were influenced by the Middle Eastern universities back in the so-called Islamic golden era, where Europeans would visit um, the the Islamic lands to attain education, and then it was those kind of clothes that were being worn there. So when they came back, they would wear loosely fitted mm-hmm. um, clothes like that, which would show the general populace that I'm an educated person who's come from the Middle East and I have educated myself. And now every single university, almost every single university, um, has that for their graduation um, mm-hmm. uniform, mm-hmm. essentially. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So they're banning it throughout the education, but then at the end of it, it's part of the tradition. Mm. It's just an ir- irony. Uh, it is an irony, and, mm. and uh, there are many ironies like that. Uh, mm. Going back to what we were discussing earlier uh, about uh, the, the issues around... Uh, 
destruction of mosques. Of, yeah. of yeah. mosques and, and safeguarding the rights of others. Hmm. Uh, Daniel, uh, anything to add to that? I believe, uh, I think we've covered it pretty well. It's just, it's, it's just very simple. It's ex- extremely simple. Mm. Um, any type of place of worship for any, anybody else, right? Um, the, we have absolutely no right to just desecrate it or, or destroy it. And we reap what we sow. And that, that's what those extremists should realize as well, that they're reaping what they sow. Maybe mm. not directly. Maybe their mosques or places of worship aren't being destroyed directly. Mm. But their so-called brothers and sisters in just across the border in India, yeah. they are having to face that difficulty. So maybe, you know, maybe learn, learn a lesson there. And, yeah. and, yeah. Uh, this week, uh, the parliament, Houses of Parliament debate had a debate discussing the persecution of Ahmadis in Pakistan uh-huh. and particularly about the desecration of mosques. In fact, it is live on Channel 504 for those who are listening now can listen to that debate um, uh, about what the UK parliament uh, is doing in support of the Andhra Muslim community and the persecution that is taking place in Pakistan. So those who wish to listen to that debate can do so uh-huh. uh, on Channel 504. When did it take on place? Parliament. It took place on Wednesday this week uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, in the evening and uh, several MPs came out and spoke. Mm-hmm. But they highlighted the situation that it is unacceptable for the Andhra Muslim community to be persecuted the way they mm-hmm. are and there's clear persecution. And some of the MPs spoke very highly of the MD Muslim community, and particularly the, uh, the what uh, Daniel was mentioning earlier about giving a positive impact on the communities in which they live. And those MDs who have come here are, are certainly doing that. Mm-hmm. And that is something Pakistan is being deprived of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The point you were making earlier. Yes, exactly. About um, the brain drain yeah, issue yeah, and, and, and yeah, all of that. Yeah. So. Uh, it's important for uh, mm. such governments to put the pressure on uh, countries like Pakistan who carry out this pers- mm. persecution has no place in in society. Yeah. It achieves, achieves nothing. Mm. It's a short term fix for them, mm-hmm. either to gain popularity, but ultimately that persecution will not win them the hearts. And the verse of the Holy Quran, like Rahifidin, there is no compulsion in matter of faith. Uh, is is just that, isn't it? That you yeah. can't compel. You can put your sword next to me and and, and say what you want, but uh, if my heart hasn't been changed, yeah. I will revert back to whenever my, the first opportunity, opportunity yeah. arises. Yeah. Yeah. Of times, the persecution literally comes back to haunt them. For example, we have the um, the Roman Empire, which was heavily persecuting the Christians for three hundred years, mm. especially under Emperor Nero. Um, you know, extreme, extreme persecution. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, their own emperor, uh, Constantine, decides yeah. to accept Christianity as mm. a state religion, right? Mm-hmm. So all of that persecution mm-hmm. literally went down the drain. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Tell me about the... Uh, we were talking about destroying mosques uh, or places of worship. What about symbols of worship, and particularly about uh, symbols of worship that were destroyed in the time of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. It wasn't just the idols in the Kaaba that were destroyed. Mm-hmm. Other idols were also destroyed. How, where's the justification of that? Are we talking about... Um, Taif, for instance? Taif. So we're, uh-huh. we're talking about the general polytheistic idols, right? Yeah. Yeah, so th- those, again, um, that was under divine commandment from God Almighty because the whole mission of the Prophet, um, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, was to, um, to, to destroy 
polytheism and spread monotheism, right? And it, it seems, it seems, I know it seems a bit harsh when when you look at it from that perspective, but you have to understand the whole social context as well. Um, and actually, I've, I've been reading about this uh, lately to to understand this a bit further. Um, why, you know, why um, why does it seem like Islam had to be defended so vigorously with the sword in those early days? Why, when the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, had passed away, and so many tribes decided to um, leave Islam or leave parts of Islam, like not wanting to give zakat or things like that? Uh, then Abu Bakr, the first caliph, may Allah be pleased with him, um, gathered his armies and gathered his banners and, and he went to war with, with those people, right? And the whole reason for that is that um, you have a society, right, uh, which has become Islamic or which needs to become, you know, Islamic Arabia at the time, mm. right? That was the mission of the Prophet. Um, as we know, right, that... The victory was in a fatahna laka fatan mubin, and victory was promised, right, and vouchsafed. So, if within that society anyone um, goes against what that society, those laws, it, it's like it's like France right now. If anyone goes against the French law, uh, the French wouldn't really stand for it, right? They'd say, okay, you know what, we believe mm. in equality, we believe in liberty, but you're going against the law of the land, so you're gonna have to, you know, leave, right, uh, or whatever, right? You're gonna have to go to prison or or, or whatnot, right? So in that same manner, you have to understand that um, the Muslims of that age they had to um, they had to follow through with some things in order to establish the religion. As the verse also mentions that if there weren't um, those kind of people um, to defend um, the religion of God, then that then the religion of God would have would have disappeared. Because imagine if if the Muslims were completely mellow and completely um, you know, non-violent, right? I'm not saying that they were violent, but if they were completely, uh, they they had no sense of aggression or no sense of um, defense within them, right? Um, in those early days of Islam, the the pagans would not have allowed Islam to spread. They would have nipped it in the bud, and and that's that's the hikmah, that's the wisdom behind um, Islam. Sometimes taking up the sword, yes, and also um, destroying those kind of idols. And again, that was in line with the Sunnah of not just the Holy Prophet. It was in line with the Sunnah of uh, the Patriarch, Hazrat Ibrahim, alayhi mm-hmm. uh, because he was actually his story is also mentioned in the Quran where he uh, went and destroyed the idols of of the uh, polytheists. So idol worship and polytheism, you know, especially in that whole context, in that whole area, in the Haram area, that that needed to be eradicated. That was a necessity. Yeah, because I, well, I asked that because also the Taliban also destroyed certain mm-hmm. uh, Buddhist idols in Afghanistan. Yeah, basing their act uh, or justifying their act on yeah. the destruction of idols that happened in early Islam. So, how do you counter that justification? I would I would say that first and foremost the. Um, I think it was the Bamiyan Buddhist statues or something like that. Yeah. They weren't. They were nowhere near the vicinity of the Haram, right? Of that specific place where Adam had um, erected the house of God, where Ibrahim had um, and and Ismail had re-erected it, and the Holy Prophet had, um, you know, uh, mm-hmm. resurrected, revived, revived it, it, yeah. in a way, right? It was nowhere near there. That's the first thing, right? The Haram has its own sanctity. And um, anywhere outside of it, like we can't really be going to India and start. We can't just start destroying the idols, right? It's just not how how it works. And and secondly, um, those those Taliban, 
believing themselves to be committing Islamic acts, um, you know, it's, it's clearly, again, it, it comes down to, look, those those idols, those Buddhist statues, they might have been a place of pilgrimage for, for Buddhists, right? And it comes down to that verse again, that we're supposed to be protecting other places of worship, right? Not destroying them, not doing the complete mm. opposite mm. of that. Mm. But but there's I know exactly what what, you, what you're trying to get get at. There, there's a very fine line, yeah. right, which needs to be remembered. Those yeah. Taliban they are not under divine construction, uh, right. instruction. Sorry, divine yeah. instruction. They're not being told by God Almighty directly. Okay, these idols, this Buddhist statue needs to be destroyed right now. Otherwise, um, my feelings will be hurt or something. You know, that's not mm-hmm. that hasn't been happening. But there's a very fine line which Muslims okay. do need to understand. But but what was happening in Arabia was specific to Arabia uh, at that time, yeah. and it should not be extended. Yeah, to exactly. to other parts of the world and other exactly. other statues exactly. and uh, even items. even in India, India is one of the most polytheistic yes. uh, countries, right? So Very many statues, much. so many uh, idols. Yeah. But even during Muslim rule, generally the Muslims, um, contrary to what the the Indians are being taught now in their schools, but generally, the Muslim rulers and the armies they weren't um, out there to destroy Hindu temples and Hindu places of worship and mm. idols and and everything. They did protect. Um, yeah. These these yeah. areas as well, these places as well. Yeah, mm. that that that, I, that thinking has just started with the Hindutva exactly. ideology, and uh, people like Sashi Tharoor have condemned that that sort of thinking. And uh, they, in fact, Sashi Tharoor says that during the Mughal and Islamic Empire, none of the wealth of the country was taken out of the country; mm. it was kept mm. for the country. Yes. Yeah. So unlike the, what the British did, unlike he's, he's British, very, yeah. he particularly makes a point of that, mm, mm. Yeah. Uh, and he uh, he does not agree that uh, uh, the temples etc were destroyed just because they were Hindu temples. Yeah. Uh, the history tells us that some of the temples were destroyed because they were used as an arsenal base to use yes. against the Muslim uh, governments, yeah. uh, and they were used as a rebellion against the, the state. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was a fight against the rebellion uh, where some of the temples did get destroyed, but yeah. very few. And even then, those temples, especially, I think this refers to the time of Aurangzeb, Alamgir, uh, especially those temples, temples weren't even completely destroyed. They were damaged, right, as a yes, warning, correct. you know, for, as a deter- deterrent yeah. for them to stop doing it. And Aurangzeb is the one who's um, been painted as the most evil doer against uh, the Hindus. But it's, it's funny because the statistics show us that the majority of his ministers, the mm. high-ranking officers, were Hindus. They were Hindus. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he had yeah. he made no distinction between Absolutely. between them. And, and, and yeah. where he had fought uh, the Sikhs as well was where there was rebellion from them. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, it was a fight against rebellion, just like any other country would. Mm-hmm. If there's a rebellion, an armed rebellion then you would have to put a stop to of it. Of course, yeah. Uh, America goes further and preempts it and mm. attacks other nations mm. uh, without being attacked themselves. So if, if anyone's got to be questioned, it is Western powers sometimes mm-hmm. that have to be uh, have to be challenged. Uh, we're coming towards the end of the show. We can't seem to get hold of Shahid Khan at the moment. But I believe uh, yeah. you've been a uh, keen fan of us sporting and always following the football. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you make of England's yesterday in the World Cup qualifying game. They drew with Ukraine, one mm. all. At, at disappointing. I didn't see the game, but I saw bits of it. Mm. Uh, disappointing to see the wealth of talent that England has got mm-hmm. and not being able to show it and demonstrate it in uh, on, the, on the pitch. Um, a one-all draw for Ukraine, I think, uh, was uh, uh, an underperformance in that respect. 
but it still puts England in a strong position in the group, do you know? Oh, I'm not aware of the group. Is there a group? <laughs> Uh, that's how you qualify, uh, I think. <laughs> I saw, so... I think Shahid is on now. Uh, oh, let's, let's good, he will on. tell us. Shahid, assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam. Yeah, sorry, we, I think there was some delay getting you on today, so our apologies. Oh, um, but we were just uh, talking with the lead about the qualifying game, England versus Ukraine. A bit disappointing for England, uh, considering what Ukraine is going undergoing at the moment, and England, you know, with the Premiership has the... Uh, pick off the best players, uh, some of the world's best players? Yeah, yeah, indeed. I think England expect to do a lot more at the moment. Obviously, Ukraine were getting all the sympathy votes and so forth. Mm. Uh, and the crowd obviously playing in Poland was somewhat, uh, I wouldn't say aggressive, but at least I think at a, as a home as a home ground, mm. so-called in inverted commas. Uh, yeah, I think the England. I think were all the yes. I I just heard the end of the your conversation with Lisa uh, about the qualification. I think this was the first point that England have dropped in the group uh, at the group stages anyway. And I think they're quite strong favourites to qualify anyway for the yeah, moment. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, but I think I, like I think a lot of pundits have said that uh, they were not thinking at its best. I think there was just the usual sort of. A, yeah, and the last few performances are very much in line with this as well because after the height of the World Cup and the European Championships, there seems the thunder has been lost, it appears. I, I agree with you totally. I mean, when you see some of the football from some of the other uh, nations around the world at the moment, mm. the flair and so forth is so much different to what we see here in Europe. Yeah. And although at times, I mean, obviously the European, uh, some of the players know each other so well, mm. uh, and they actually do cancel themselves out. Even the scorer was the Arsenal player yesterday for uh, Ukraine. Mm. So they, they tend to know each other quite well, and that I think sometimes nullifies the game itself. But having said that, I think that factor about the flair and so forth is something that England have some very, very good players, and people Indeed. like Modern Saka. Uh, they are excellent players in the Premiership, mm-hmm. and but when it comes to this stage, for some reason there's some kind of a holdback, and I think uh, to watch England is not very pleasant. I think that's what the fans mention as well. Yeah, in the past shows we've had to cut short on the cricket, so we won't do that today. Uh, Pakistan India today yeah. Asia Cup uh, important game as always, probably the most watched game in the world when Pakistan and India are playing cricket. But it looks like India have come with a vengeance uh, to counter the the bowling of Shaheen and Naseem. Indeed, I think that's how things were in the previous in the match that India, in the uh, group stage of an earlier match, which is washout. Uh, Pakistan just blew away their top order and uh, it seemed as if it was going to be a one-sided game in, in the put up a very good batting performance at the end. Yeah. And I think all honours were even in that match. Correct. But like you mentioned today, today I think Shaheen and uh, Naseem, although the, what they have shown in the past, they seem to take, take those wickets early on and that really puts them on the back foot. But today, 121, I think, for one, at least... That's right. Uh, Roy so Sharma has yeah. just got bowled out by Shadab. I just got... Yeah, Shaheen got a bit oh, of a okay, back. Okay, sorry, I think. Yeah. Sorry, go on, carry on. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, yeah you were saying. I, yeah, I Shaheen got. Shaheen seems to have got a bit of a battering today, uh, but the seam's uh, bowling been quite efficient. Oh, he was absolutely unplayable. What I saw some of it is uh, that it was just the fact that some of the even when the chances did come through the slips and so forth. 
and even some unplayable de- deliveries. Mm. Uh, but nevertheless, I think India rode out that well and uh, onto a 350 score, I should imagine, today. There's been a lot of criticism about India, even from the Indian uh, uh, media as well. But, you know, at the end of the day, India are a very strong team and got to be one of the favourites, not just to win the Asia Cup, but also possibly the World Cup, which is coming in October. Oh, indeed, I think in, on their home ground, there will be a, a team to be reckoned with, like uh, I think there are other teams as well, I mean, nevertheless. Uh, but India, perhaps, are the, I think, not the out and out favourites, but the top two or three, I think, for the World Cup and not just for the Asia Cup as well. So this is a good pointer towards that. But nevertheless, I think the Indian pitches will be somewhat different to the ones at Colombo in Sri Lanka. And in Pakistan, certainly in the reckoning, they are world number one. Uh, is it T20 or ODI <laughs> as well? Uh, ODI as well. I mean, what happens in the case of Pakistan, they don't seem to... Uh, live up to the expectation of number one. I mean, in some of the, uh, the earlier match, for instance, against, uh, against Bangladesh, for instance, mm. uh, where also the bowling uh, came to the fore and uh, they just uh, did a uh, the bowling attack was very, very efficient. Uh, but the batting just seemed to be there again, hold back, holding them back. And I think uh, whether or not it was just match practice or not, but uh, they don't look like number one, let's put it that way. I mean, but the, I think sometimes these are quite. Uh, they have to live up to those expectations, which I think when you're number one doesn't have necessarily happen. No, no. Uh, so you got Australia, Pakistan in the top three, all would be uh, the favourites to win the World Cup. Uh, it's going to be some good matches, uh, I would have thought. I indeed, I think uh, ODI, I think, is one of the formats that people have talked about not being a very good one, but I think a lot of the cricket lovers love it for the fact that. Uh, teams can build on it like the India did in that first game as well against Pakistan. Mm. Is that when you have got a, a betting loaded down, over down, uh, they have to come and produce some results. And I think that's what at least that's cricket at its best. I think uh, in the f- format of the 50 overs is something that I prefer, and I think a lot of cricket lovers do that as well. Mm. Barbara Azam getting a lot of accolades. He's uh, the top batsman in the world. Uh, is he performing well enough at the moment or is he slightly still inconsistent? His performance has been up and down lately, I would have thought. Yeah, he's got high expectations. We have a high expectation, like you mentioned, he's ranking number one in the world. Hmm. Uh, but I think he has a lot, I mean, on his plate, the fact that he's captain of all the three formats and to live up to all that, not just the captaincy, but also with regard to his batting, uh, for Pakistan, I think he's been outstanding. Let's not uh, get away from that fact in- that he has been indeed outstanding. Indeed. Uh, Shai, thank you very much for giving us your insight on the cricket and on the football. Uh, thank you, everyone, for joining. Daniel Kalun, our resident imam, uh, and Maru Kharif, as well as Philip Kent. Uh, and as always, Valid, hosting mm. the show with me and our technical team in the Voice of Islam studios. Anyone wishing to contact us, please do so. I look forward to meeting you next time.